the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Is Canada pulling its weight in NATO? It certainly looks like the government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has let our allies down badly in that regard. Consider, during the First World War, over 650,000 Canadians and Newfoundlanders served. So out of a population of about 6 million, 100 in 1,000 people served in the armed forces. At the end of the Second World War, Canada possessed the fourth largest air force and fifth largest naval service fleet in the world. In total, more than a million Canadians and Newfoundlanders served in World War II, both at home and around the world. The population at the time was about 12 million, so that's 83 people serving per thousand population. However, by 2021, Canada had only about 67,000 full-time military personnel, or about 1.9 military personnel per thousand people in our country. That's in contrast to about four military personnel per thousand people in the United States. In 2014, at the NATO summit in Wales, the government of former Prime Minister Stephen Harper promised to boost defense spending to 2% of our GDP. But the Trudeau government, now in power since 2015, has dragged its feet on this and we spend less than 1.5% of our GDP on defense. This led to a démarché, or diplomatic letter, being sent to Canada's National Defense Department by the Trump administration. Peter McKay, who was defense minister for six years under Harper, said that such a letter amounts to, quote, a very serious diplomatic slap, not on the wrist, but in the face. <laughs> to discuss this topic and other Canada-related issues of interest to Americans, I have for the second time in three weeks, no less, my friend Joseph Benamy to be my guest in today's show. A former naval officer, Joseph Benamy, is host of The Joseph Benamy Show. He's a respected and entertaining television and radio commentator and public speaker, offering insights on culture, politics, and current affairs from a conservative perspective. Joseph was president of the conservative think tank, Arthur Meehan Institute for Public Affairs from 2008 to 2017. Prior to joining the Meehan Institute, he was executive director of the Institute for Canadian Values, and before that, director of government relations and diplomatic affairs for the well-known Jewish advocacy group, B'nai B'rith. He has served on numerous organizational boards, including the advisory board of Jews Against Anti-Christian Defamation. Really relevant to this show, Joseph is a former policy aide to Stephen Harper, Canada's former conservative prime minister, as well as Stockwell Day, Harper's predecessor as party leader. He has served as consultant speechwriter for several senior executives and political officials. So he's a good one to talk about all sorts of things, especially this defense issue. So welcome to the show, Joseph. Glad to be back. Yeah, for sure. So was my introduction a little overly critical in your opinion, or is Canada not pulling its weight when it comes to NATO defense spending and, you know, our total national defense spending? Well, I think you have to have a little perspective. I think, first of all, the numbers that you've cited are quite accurate. Um, and if you just look at the raw numbers, there is a serious question as to whether Canada is pulling its weight. Of course, you could boost your spending to 2% of GDP and 
not be pulling your weight still. You could be spending 5 or 10% of GDP on defense and still not be pulling your weight. So I think it's just really careful. You have to be really careful about uh, how you look at the numbers and how you interpret the numbers. That said, I don't think that there's any question that Canada uh, has uh, fallen down, if you will, on the job of pulling its weight in the area of collective defense. But not only that, it, you have to also bear in mind that we're not really pulling our own weight domestically on defense. And the reason I say that is because you mentioned already the size of Canada's uh, naval fleet at the conclusion of World War II. Canada has the longest coastline in the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the Navy, for instance, is responsible for isn't just fighting wars, but it's also important for uh, drug and criminal interdiction, um, immigration. We do get illegal immigration from boats and ships over the years. Uh, It's responsible for environmental protection as well. So there's a whole gamut of things that our military is responsible for that we don't really, even domestically, have the capacity to fully discharge. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of a long-winded way of saying, you're right, I don't think that we are keeping up with our responsibilities, neither domestically nor uh, internationally when it comes to defense. Mm-hmm. When I was in the military, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau was in charge, of course, and we found that the funding was dropping even then. So is that when our funding really started to become insufficient? Well, again, you have to be careful not to look at this strictly through the prism of funding, but I think absolutely under Pierre Trudeau is when you saw a significant reduction of our willingness and our ability to contribute at the same levels that we had been contributing, particularly to NATO. For instance, under Pierre Trudeau, we closed military bases in Europe that had been open since our we first became involved with NATO since NATO's inception. Uh, so, you know, even if you have, even if you're meeting that 2% target, uh, the question is, what are you doing with the, with the resources that you're purchasing with that 2%? The other thing, I, I just have to be fair, because uh, I like to say I'm like a hockey referee. I call them as I see them. Yeah. Um, but, but it's important to remember that this decline in Canada's military has occurred not just under liberal governments, not just under the current Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, but under conservative governments as well. And again, in fairness, to give a little perspective, you know, you started off by citing the kind of numbers that Canadians contributed to both the First and Second World War efforts. Tremendous, tremendous numbers of Canadians came forward. Most of those were volunteers. We did have conscription in both world wars, but not until later. Okay. So the the plain fact is that when the call of duty has been sounded, Canadians have responded en masse. Mm-hmm. But in between the wars, the fact is that we haven't shown ourselves to be a very militaristic or militarily interested society, except for that period perhaps of two decades two and a half decades after the Second World War, where the, the, the Cold War was was just raging already, if you could use that term in relation to the Cold War, uh, and which time the government was far more committed 
than it is now. But what we see in Canada really is almost a return to normalcy. And I'm not justifying it. I'm just making the observation. I think that we need to do far more in terms of collective defense, particularly today when we see greater threats from not just a resurgent Russia, but an aggressive and increasingly aggressive China and smaller states like North Korea that, for instance, you know, they're developing nuclear weapons, they're developing ballistic missile technology, and everybody always talks about the threat to the United States that North Korea poses. But the truth is, any threat to the United States is an equal threat to Canada, not just because of treaty obligations, but because any missiles that can reach the United States from Korea uh, can easily reach Canadian cities as well. And one final thought about this, I can't let the occasion pass without also pointing out that Iran, while Iran poses no direct threat in terms of its missile technology to Canada, Iran already has missiles that probably can reach quite effectively into the heart of Europe. And that, of course, brings into play our obligations as a full partner in NATO. Right. Um, you know, if, if, if for whatever reason, the Iranian government decided that they wanted to launch some kind of an attack on Turkey, which is right in its neighborhood, but even into Central Europe and Western Europe, that would automatically involve us in a war with Iran and its allies. Mm-hmm. So we, we need to be doing more. Uh, we need to be spending more. And I think we need to be spending more wisely at the same time than we are right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of it has to do with a person's upbringing. You know, Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, for example, he grew up with a father who didn't go to World War II. He actually was driving around Montreal on a motorcycle wearing a Nazi helmet, if you can believe that. And you contrast that with my father, for example, who fought in both the Atlantic and Pacific campaigns. And, you know, during the Vietnam War, he had a big map on the wall and he was showing us at dinner time what was going on. And, you know, he lost a lot of his friends in the war. So I think that surely that has something to do with Justin Trudeau's lack of interest in the war is that his own upbringing was very unwar focused. <laughs> I, I'm sure that it has something to do uh, with it. Uh, I, I couldn't quantify that, but I wouldn't dismiss it. Also, I I just uh, on the side, I I think it's important also to mention the Korean War, because we sort of we've mentioned the both world wars. And then you sort of jumped ahead and mentioned the the Vietnam War, although not in the context of actually fighting there. But let's not forget that Canada played a major role in the the Korean conflict as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. The Parliamentary Budget Office has a report out in which they say that even by 2027, we're only going to be slightly over one point five percent of our GDP. And, you know, it's interesting because they say, oh, if we wanted to get to 2%, we have to spend something like 12 billion more per year to get to that point. And they approach that as if that's infeasible. But is it really infeasible when you consider they've spent something like 120 billion since 2015 on climate change, you know, which is mostly a waste of money. So, I mean, is the PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office, are they actually being uh, overly pessimistic. I mean, could we meet 2% if we really wanted to? Well, the answer to that is yes, we could. Uh, the PBO is basing its uh, estimates on current spending commitments and uh, economic trends. In other words, where do we think the GDP will be 
in the next few years? And what are we planning on spending on defense in the next few years as well? So those numbers, while there is a certain amount of crystal ball gazing when it comes to the GDP, uh, in terms of planned military spending, those are pretty hard numbers. So I, I would give a lot of credibility to what the Parliamentary Budget Office is saying uh, on this on this topic. Can we meet our uh, obligations? I Let me take a second just to address that word, obligation. It's important to remember that these are not just arbitrary numbers that somebody is committed to. We signed treaties. We have agreed with our international partners that we are going to contribute this much to the collective defense. Uh, so one wonders what the point of signing a treaty is if you have no intention of ever following through on it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we could talk about Kyoto and all of that stuff in that context yeah. as well, I suppose. But, you know, we have this this crazy idea that you could just go out, sign a treaty, come back, give yourself a pat on the back, say we did a wonderful thing, we made a commitment, but never follow through on it. Yeah, And that's kind of a, the, what, what we do here in Canada on so many different uh, levels. Yeah. Can we meet our obligations? The answer is, of course we can. It would require a certain amount of rejigging where the money is allocated in terms of our overall federal budget. It, it may require some extra spending. But, you know, the interesting thing about spending money on the military is that you're actually hiring people directly. So in most cases, so, you know, there's a, a positive effect on, on employment as well. Where you know just simply giving uh, a a loan guarantee of thirteen billion dollars to some Volkswagen related company that's promising to build EV batteries in Ontario, you know that's much more speculative. So it's all about political will, Tom, and we just don't have to have we don't have the political will at this moment in the country to yeah. uh, to boost military spending to the levels that we promised we would. Yeah, and we've had nine years since that NATO summit where we actually signed a treaty, or at least an agreement, to boost our military spending to 2% of GDP. I mean, surely in nine years, that was enough time to get up if we wanted to. Well, it's worse than that, because the 2% level was already the target that we had agreed on before. So the, the Harper government in 2014 was only reiterating Canada's commitment to, that other countries in NATO have already uh, were also committed to as well. So I don't know what when the 2% target was established, but it certainly was established long before 2014. Mm-hmm. Now, Trump actually gave a bit of a slap in the face to quite a few nations at that time. Have others responded? I mean, obviously we haven't, but have others responded, say Germany and England? Are they boosting their spending on defense? Uh, the answer to that is yes. Um, it, it Was it uh, strictly speaking in response to anything that Donald Trump said? Uh, certainly, there was an element of that, but also you see a lot more concern about defense spending in Europe in reaction to what's happening in Eastern Europe right now between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Uh, and you know who knows where that's going to turn out. We we just learned this uh, past week that the Russians are are planning on stationing short range tactical nuclear missiles in Belarus, uh, which is you know effectively surrounding Ukraine. I think that that's a potentially serious uh, escalation. But then, you know, we have this, uh, I, again, think muddy-headed thinking in the halls of politicians with respect to expansion of NATO. 
And it's pretty hard for me to understand why we're having serious conversations about Ukraine's future uh, membership in NATO when the Ukraine is at war with the at the currently at war with the country that is the primary target of the deterrence of NATO. Uh, to me, I, I just I don't understand that kind of thinking. Well, certainly, you could talk about it behind closed doors, but to use it as a means of saber rattling, I just don't think helps the situation at all. Yeah. Now, tell me what you think of this. My massage therapist, who I see occasionally, is. Ukrainian Russian. And she sent me some information that I thought was pretty interesting. I checked it out and it was valid. Apparently, Secretary of State Baker, who was under one of the George Bushes, probably the first one, he promised, and it's actually documented, Russia, he promised Gorbachev that they would not expand NATO eastward. And the same kind of promise was made to Yeltsin by people in the UK. And yet we've doubled the size of NATO pushing towards Russia. So I mean, to some extent, Putin is right to be complaining about us breaking our agreement. I mean, what do you think? Is NATO partly responsible for the animosity from Russia right now? Well, let's be careful uh, on how we address this. This is a thorny issue. Um, Simply looking at the facts, the fact is that uh, at the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, and uh, and the realignment of countries in Eastern and Central Europe, the reunification of Germany, there was a lot of talk. And, and one of the commitments that was made was that not so much that NATO would never expand eastward, but certainly that countries, new countries, let's remember this about the Ukraine. Ukraine has been an independent state a couple of times in its long history, but for the most part, the Ukraine has been a province of Russia. And even to the extent that in the Soviet Union, the president of the Soviet Union or the chairman of the, of the Politburo at the time, uh, Nikita Khrushchev, for instance, was Ukrainian. Oh, is that so right? there was an understanding and probably formal commitments that any kind of activity with respect to NATO would never involve countries like the Ukraine. and. So to say that 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 the West, that NATO countries have been provocative, uh, I think they have. But I think it's worth also mentioning that whatever provocation there has been, it doesn't justify what the Russians have done. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, an, an all out invasion of Ukraine, I, I think, just is 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 not tolerable and not justified by any of the so-called provocations that NATO might have engaged in. But mm-hmm. look, Tom, on this subject, I mean, we could spend a whole hour talking about it. But, you know, the, the, the truth is that there has been no f- real hard border between uh, Russia and Ukraine, not just for many years but, and decades. Uh, it's only recently that we have a hard border. Prior to that, there was actually no effective border whatsoever. So you're talking about two ethnic groups with two fairly similar but different languages that have been living in the same country for many, many years, mm-hmm. uh, for centuries, in fact. And and so when the Ukraine became independent, there were areas in the east of Ukraine uh, that were very ethnically mixed up. And these territories have been in dispute, frankly, since the, the, the days of the uh, independence of Ukraine back in the uh, early 90s. 
uh, and with periodic fighting back and forth, both formal and informal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it was Ron DeSantis that, that made the observation that the war in the Ukraine with Russia has essentially been, or was essentially, a border war, a border dispute. And, mm-hmm. and he's not wrong about that. Of course, it's now become much more than that, but it's it's important, I think, for us to have some perspective. I'm, I'm not defending Russia, but at the same time, I, I think that we've gone perhaps a little bit overboard with putting the Ukraine and President Zelensky on a pedestal. Oh, um, yeah. Vladimir Zelensky is no Winston Churchill. Yeah. And for and for and for more reasons than just the simple fact that Winston Churchill would never have contemplated giving a speech to Congress in Washington in a tracksuit. <laughs> yeah. Well, also apparently he imprisoned the opposition leader after the election, and they say has had journalists assassinated. I understand the Ukraine actually rated worse on the corruption index even than Russia. Uh, in one of these, you know, assessments. So uh, you're right. I mean, he's no choir boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I keep asking whenever this subject comes up, what exactly is our compelling interest in what happens in Ukraine? Because if it's deterring the Russians, which is the primary object of NATO, yeah. um, I'm asking myself, do we really believe, and this is an open question, by the way, I'm not drawing any conclusions here. But it's difficult for me to believe that the Russians are really on a campaign to expand their territory to reestablish the old Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that, Tom, is because if they wanted to reestablish the old Soviet Union, it seems to me that the logical place to start wouldn't be with the Ukraine, which everybody knew was going to fight back. Yeah. But maybe you'd concentrate on some of the softer targets like Kazakhstan like Uzbekistan, like Turkmenistan, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and Azerbaijan, Armenia, and these places that are all independent former members of the Soviet Union, uh, mm-hmm. but are now independent countries. These would be far better targets for the uh, Russians to uh, uh, go after if their goal was to reconstitute the old Soviet Union. Uh, or even the old Russian Empire. So I, I'm I'm having difficulty understanding why it's so important for us to expand NATO to the east if the goal of NATO is to deter Russian expansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and again, I, these are hard questions to ask, and they're difficult questions to answer. But I do think that these are questions that need to be answered. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we live in an environment where. Not only do you get shut down and yelled at and called names from the left, but you, you get suffer almost the same degree of, of of consternation from your friends on the right. Yeah. And so, you know, what happens to a person like me that likes to be a little bit level-headed and reasonable and that is open-minded? And and I'm I'm a man of the right, but I'm a man of the right because I'm open-minded. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like Dad said, he's not left or right he's sensible you know (laughs) excellent way to put it yeah he said he'll listen to arguments from both sides and maybe he'll agree with something on the left i mean you know it's not a hard we're part of this tribe we have to always agree with the people you know tucker carlson i guess he ran into trouble on this issue because he was prepared to ask the kind of questions that you and i are asking and yet i think you're right i think that to have a proper understanding of these issues and i'm certainly no fan of 
Vladimir Putin. But to have a proper understanding, you have to look at history and you have to ask and try at least at times to see it through Putin's eyes to understand what he's going to do next. Because, I mean, the, the bottom line is we do not want a direct NATO-Russia conflict. I mean, that is something we definitely don't want. So just jumping back to the Canada issue. Right, of course. A little bit, a little bit safer and more at home. When you look at the Navy, and I know you're an ex-Naval officer, when you think about what the Navy was like, are we very well equipped militarily? Are, do you think that you know we compare much with, let's say, when you were in the military? Oh, I don't think we're anywhere near properly equipped for most of the missions that we undertake. Tom, for starters, just for the Navy, as I mentioned already, the Navy isn't just about hunting Russian submarines or or, or maybe at some point in time in the not-too-distant future starting to concentrate on hunting Chinese submarines. The Navy performs a, a multitude of tasks that are critically important to the safety and security of Canada and Canadians, uh, from drug interdiction to immigration control to environmental protection to search and rescue. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we do not have, in my judgment, the necessary resources at our disposal to be able to discharge all of those functions with any kind of, of sensible and comfortable degree mm -hmm. so you know that that's a real problem for me the mm -hmm. second issue when we talk about the military of course we're talking about the army well the responsibility of the army is not as uh great i think as the responsibility of the navy during peacetime mm -hmm. so i certainly am prepared to accept a a, a less equipped a lower number of personnel in the army that said, it doesn't follow immediately that the army doesn't do things in peacetime that they're called on in terms of providing for the safety and security of Canadians. For instance, uh, we have these wildfires. When you have situations that the the normal authorities, the normal uh, fire departments are unable to cope, you're going to turn to the army. When mm -hmm. you have flooding, you turn to the army. When you have natural disasters, you turn to the army. And I, I once had a debate uh, on terrestrial radio here in Ottawa. We were discussing the potential purchase by Canada of heavy lift aircraft, and 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 my interlocutors were saying, "Well, we don't need those. What do we need? What does Canada need those for?" Well, apart from the fact that we do need heavy lift aircraft to be able to get troops and equipment to Europe to meet our NATO obligations if, God forbid, there was an outbreak of war. Apart from that, how about if there was an earthquake in Vancouver and we needed to get heavy lift equipment, okay, mm. to, from one part of the country to the other? Uh, we can't depend on civilian aircraft and civilians to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, so the Army plays an important role as well. Uh, and and I, I don't think that we're anywhere near equipped for that, let alone to meet the other missions that we're giving our military, our soldiers, in different places around the world in peacekeeping and in training, etc. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the Air Force. What can you say about the Air Force, where we can't make up our minds? It's 10 years now, and we still haven't been able to make up our minds about what kind of aircraft we're going to use to replace the uh, F-18 fleet that we have. So yeah. that still is controversial. And, you know, we've been talking about our obligations to collective defense when it comes to NATO. 
But let's not forget that we also have a treaty with the United States for collective defense of North American airspace, mm-hmm. and which and which is now which is now airspace and outer space. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so you know we keep on increasing our responsibilities uh, without a commensurate increase in the resources that are necessary to meet those responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I for one, while I'm a very big believer in collective defense. And I have no objection whatsoever to uh, American fighter planes deterring uh, Russian aircraft bombers that are coming and testing, which happens on a regular basis, testing our air defense responses, okay? I would feel a lot better if we Canadians were able to contribute equally to the defense of our own airspace. Yeah. I, I don't think I don't think that that's... And, and that's that's just a question of call it national pride, I guess. But I was always brought up with the belief that, uh, you know, you you should be willing to look after your own affairs before you start looking to other people to look after your affairs. And yeah. I, I feel like on so many areas that we've been falling down on the job. Yeah. Well, we have to go for a break. I'll be right back with Joseph Benamy, a former policy aide to Stephen Harper, Canada's former conservative prime minister and joseph i was hoping to start the second half out with you telling us about what you did in the navy is that okay oh gee i don't know how much i'm allowed to talk about (laughs) well we'll be right back whether you're an independent a democrat or a republican one thing remains true airborne viruses love us equally You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to healthycell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back guaranteed healthycell.com code out loud here on america out loud we emphasize optimal health and air is the most essential element for life the average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to the genesis fogger plus hocl is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. 
Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com, seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. So I'm back with Joseph Benemy, a former naval officer and host of the Joseph Benemy Show. And we'll include a link to his show right after the podcast when it goes up on Monday. So Joseph, what did you do in the Navy? <laughs> Well, I was a what's called a Mars classification, so a maritime surface officer. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, what does that mean? Uh, that means basically uh, a jack of all trades at the officer level. I was just a junior officer. So, you know, from supervising uh, the uh, members of the crew in certain duties, making sure things got done, to conning the ship, doing some navigation, uh, etc., uh, but 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 mostly, I have to say, um, uh, Tom, uh, uh, my my time in the Navy was spent being perhaps just a little bit bored with the lack of action. Except, yeah, except well, from time to time when you know there were things that heated up, and um, uh, as I'm sure you'll appreciate, there are a lot of things that go on that even today we don't talk about. Um, uh, suffice to say that I I could tell you that Canada's Navy as with most militaries around the world are, are are not just sitting around twiddling their thumbs although there was a, a fair amount of that um uh, and uh, the real exciting part about being in the canadian navy uh is if you happen to be at sea in the north atlantic surviving yeah uh, is surviving the north atlantic storms i i, I do not do roller coasters <laughs> i've had enough of that yeah, in real life. Two summers, Two summers I spent on the destroyer Mackenzie, which was a destroyer escort, actually. And we went through a hurricane in the, <clears throat> I guess they call it typhoon in the Pacific. Right. And that, that was kind of fun. I mean, most of the ship's company got sick. And fortunately, I didn't get sick. And they forbid us to go top deck because, of course, you could get washed overboard. Of course. Yeah. Well, I went top deck anyway because <laughs> I said, when am I going to chance in my life ever to see a typhoon from a ship in the middle of the typhoon in the well, Pacific? It was scary, but I got some pretty incredible pictures. Well, you know, I, I do tell people that you you haven't really lived until you're uh, in, in the ocean and you're looking up at the top of the waves. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. The St. Croix, which was another destroyer escort, was on its last trip. We were coming up from California. And um, it was about to be decommissioned. And I'm not sure if this is part of the reason for it. Maybe you can tell me. But the whole bow of the ship right up to the superstructure would go underwater with each wave. And the wave would hit, oh, about a third of the way up the, you know, the superstructure. And the whole front of the ship was underwater, the whole bow. Was that perhaps because it was near its, the end of its life? Or is that something that you've seen? No, that that's that's quite common with the smaller ships uh, in heavy seas, uh, and you know that's why it's it's really you have to really be careful about how how you're conning the ship when you're in those kinds of seas because if you do things the wrong way and you find yourself pointed in the wrong direction vis-a-vis -vis the waves, you can capsize. 
Um, oh. uh, it's uh, uh, it, it it happens. Uh, it doesn't happen with really large ships, but when you're talking frigates and and destroyers, they're uh, they're not exactly you know they're not exactly the big ships. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so it's not unusual, at least to give the impression. It's it is a bit of an illusion, okay? When you when you're when you're sailing into the waves, okay, um, and you you come across a large swell, uh, it it give gives you the illusion of actually going underwater. When really yeah. what you're doing is you're going through the swell itself. So oh, yeah. it's it's not it's not really underwater, even though you know you're you're pretty well. You're pretty looks like you're pretty much underwater. Um, and, and the waves of course will reach, uh, come up, uh, good ones will come up and, and hit the superstructure. And you think to yourself, how did that not come through the glass on the bridge? So it's, uh, it, it is, uh, it is very exciting. And, and I'm surprised to hear that you weren't sick because I, you're one of the few people that I know that, uh, didn't get sick in a storm. Now sick doesn't mean, you know, sick as in whatever but gosh when you're when you're when you're on a think picture this okay think of yourself on the biggest roller coaster that you can imagine but not being able to get off for 12 hours <laughs> yeah yeah well i know the other okay. part the other parts of the crew were not happy campers <laughs> they didn't just take the day off they were just in horrible shape well you know, because said, what do you do you can't sleep yeah okay you can't sleep you you want to sit down and eat well, first of all, you don't feel like eating, but even if you want to chance it, I mean, you're, you're, you don't even have a stable tray of food in front of you yeah. to be able to, to enjoy it. Uh, you want to have a cup of coffee, you know? So what do you, what do you survive on? Well, you survive on, you know, the odd sandwich or whatever, if you feel like eating. And I, yeah. I like to say that there's really, when you get right down to it, in a storm anyway, there's really no such thing as a person that isn't seasick. It just depends on how you define seasickness. Yeah, yeah. But, I guess um, we was somewhat seasick, but not like the rest of the crew. But, you know, it was interesting. Watching the St. Croix, they had 3-inch 70 guns on the front. And they would go completely, well, as you say, under the swell. And then, woof, the guns yeah. would come up again. I mean, it was a very impressive thing. For a second, when you first see it, you think the ship is just going down. But sure. no, you're right. It was just going through a swell. <laughs> it 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 really drives home how insignificant we all are as people on this planet. Yeah, uh, it's it, it, the the power of of the planet is uh, is just of nature. It's just it's indescribable. I, I couldn't possibly find words. You know, the people that sit around. We like to talk about climate change between the two of us and that, and the people who sit around in their their labs and they do calculations and they talk about nature and how man is affecting nature and stuff like that. And whether some of that is true or not, let's set that aside. Uh, what what I astonishes is me what astonishes me is their their lack of real perception as to how powerful nature is, oh, how yeah. immense and how utterly insignificant human beings are up against nature itself and mm -hmm. and just when you think about that sometimes it's just on that basis alone hard for me to believe that uh when i drive my car from one place to the next to the city that i'm on the verge of uh contributing to a catastrophe uh, a natural catastrophe in this world I, I it's hard for me to swallow that i'm not saying it's entirely untrue 
um, uh, you know, I'm open-minded enough about it, but still, you know, when you've experienced the kinds of things at sea, um, you, you really kind of think twice about that. Yeah. Well, you might've seen the comedy skit by George Carlin. And uh, he said, save the whales, save the snails, save the bees, save the trees, save the planet. He said, what? The planet's been through a lot worse than us. We've had thousands of years of asteroid bombardment, half of continents covered with lava, and we're worried about a few plastic bags. You know, <laughs> so I'll put a link to that video, which, by the way, you have to put it with a lot of swearing because that's what he does. But sure. uh, yeah, he's, he really hit the nail on the head. And, you know, talking about climate change, I think it would be worthwhile going back and talking about why Canada signed the Kyoto Protocol. And it was quite interesting because apparently during the Kyoto negotiations, the negotiators had no idea what the impact would be on Canada's economy. So they didn't really know what targets to hit or to at least promise to hit. And so they sent a telegram, which in those days was the way we corresponded back in, um, let's see, 1997. And they asked the prime minister's office, what should we do with respect to targets? And he wrote back three words, beat the Americans. <laughs> so we entered into an agreement, like with some of the defense things, where we really didn't know if we could make it. We didn't know if we, or even how to make it. So of course, I think Harper was right to get out of the Kyoto Protocol, don't you? Oh, 100% correct. Absolutely. Look, we don't have to be part of any international agreement in order to do our part on anything that has anything to do with the environment. Why do I have to agree or why do I have to sign on to a treaty with 35 other countries or more uh, if I truly believe that the right thing for my country to do is ABC, then let's get on with doing ABC, irrespective of what everybody else is doing. So in, in this respect, I don't really get what the point is of the of the some of these international treaties, except when except when you start building uh, international bureaucracies uh, that have actually nothing to do with solving the problem that needs to be solved mm -hmm. so that that's a different subject altogether mm -hmm. but um but absolutely why why do we have to be part of kyoto why i i don't i don't understand it nobody's been able to give me an explanation mm -hmm. same thing with the paris agreement i mean i get the impression that this is all virtue signaling so that when our leaders go to conferences they can get up on the stage and boast about what we're doing and yet, you know, you were saying earlier that our main focus on various things, including defense, but also environment, <clears throat> should be on what we're doing to help Canada. And it's interesting that the UN originally wanted 50% of the funding, this was in the Copenhagen conference, to go to adaptation to actually help us prepare for whatever climate change happens, whether it's human caused or not. In Canada, the last I saw is we're spending only 13%. Most of it is on this virtue signaling, reducing CO2 emissions. I mean, surely that's a mistake where we're spending almost all of our money on what really doesn't affect us in the least. Um, I, I, I am an educated man. Uh, and I keep on asking this every time I go on a podcast, every time I go on a show and the subject of climate change comes up, I have an open invitation for people out there to please show me the scientific research behind the assertion that CO2 is causing climate change. I have, 
I'm I'm astounded that nobody has taken me up on my offer. I, I just want to see it. Um, there's a lot of claim out there, but there isn't a lot of scientific research. And you know, I, I wrote a column that's on my website uh, on on this topic particularly, not so much to do with climate change, but to do with what I think is the the incredible uh, disastrous. Uh, uh, abandonment of of the scientific method when it comes to research, mm-hmm. um, and and so you you got a, this crazy situation where people make an assertion. You know, um, it, it, with climate change, we're going to have more extreme weather, and then they look and they see that there's more extreme weather, so they do what's called <laughs> and this is a formal fallacy and logic of of affirming the consequent that yeah. if. So, so if, if, if there's climate change, we're going to see more extreme weather. Okay. That's the assertion. And, and then they turn around the converse, but the converse isn't true. If, Mm. if there's more extreme weather, that must be because of climate change. Well, first of all, there is no more extreme weather. Okay. As we've well known, it's, it's this, this stuff is observable and documented, but even if there was, uh, weather is, uh, predominantly determined by local atmosphere conditions there you know the, the climate contributes to it but climate is only one variable in whatever the weather is including weather patterns and trends over years and so the argument that extreme weather even if it existed uh is proof of climate change is specious mm-hmm. and and if you were taking a, a class in a first year university class in critical thinking uh, and you sp- and you you laid out the argument um, uh, if a b b therefore a if that if you laid that out as a logical argument you'd fail the course yeah yeah for sure but if you lay that out if you lay out precisely that argument but instead of a and b you fill in extreme weather climate change. People give you a pat on the back, and they give you. They say, "Wow, I can't believe how prescient you are." Yeah, uh, it's yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's mind-boggling, and unfortunately, uh, you know, most people, and I say this with the greatest of respect, but most people don't understand the fallacy that's being employed. But regrettably, most of the people who are actually committing it clearly don't understand that they're committing this fallacy, and so we we spend billions of dollars. Uh, and and trillions worldwide uh, are pursuing a scientific theory or, or trying to design policy that's consistent with a theory that has never been demonstrated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're just using and, correlation to try and say that this is causation. So I always say, well, you realize that as it's gotten warmer, because of course it has since around 1880, it's warmed about a degree Celsius. As it's gotten warmer, there have become less and less pirates. So we should become pirates to stop global warming. And that's the same kind of argument they're using. Yeah, it's true that since 1880, there's been a rise in temperature and there's also been a rise in CO2. Well, that doesn't prove that CO2 caused it any more than the reduction in pirates. All it means is that there's a correlation. Because if we look back through geologic history, you know, we we can go back uh, 550 million years. You find times when CO2 was 10 times higher than today and we were in cold conditions. So, I mean, there's no consistent correlation through the geologic record. So instead, what they're basing policy on, and it's the same thing in the US, the same thing in Canada, they're basing it on these climate models. But they don't work, do they? 
Well, this is a client, your climate models, of course, are completely dependent on what variables you plug into it. Um, yeah. And and the worst part about it is that even plugging in variables that are supposed to have a certain outcome, you're still not getting the predicted outcomes. So, so but in, in fairness, okay, uh, you know, we, we're taking on the climate, so-called climate scientists in this particular discussion. But the reality, uh, Tom, is that this problem has infected absolutely every nook and cranny of the scientific community, uh, and particularly in the so-called social sciences, uh, and in every area of public policy that purports to be evidence um, uh, based. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but but they it really isn't, and it's it's as though it reminds me of the old um, uh, whoever wh- who was it that used to play Marcus Welby. Um, uh, I can't remember his name, Young something Young. I can't remember his first name. Um, uh, he had a commercial at one point in time, right on the television, and he'd come out with his uh, his his white coat because remember Marcus Welby was a doctor on television, right? Yeah. And he'd go, um, uh, my name is whatever, um, uh, and I play a doctor on television, but I'm not a real doctor, okay? And then he goes on selling some sort of medical stuff or whatever. I don't, I don't know. Um, just because these guys wear lab coats and they have, you know, 35 acronyms after their name and their doctors or PhDs and stuff like that doesn't mean that what they're doing is science. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, we have here in Canada assisted suicide, right? Euthanasia. Mm-hmm. The 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 acronym that they use for this program is MAID, M-A-I-D, Medical Assistance in Dying. Well, mm-hmm. that, of course, is just a euphemism. But there's nothing medical in it because medicine is supposed to heal people. So when you're killing people, it doesn't matter that you're doing it in a hospital in in uh, wearing surgical garb. It's mm-hmm. not medicine. So mm-hmm. you you don't medically assist people to die. Uh, mm-hmm. If 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 that's the case, that every time you know in in a uh, in a in a mystery novel somebody slipped somebody some arsenic in their soup <laughs> it was medical. some sort of a medical procedure yeah it's it's crazy well you know it's interesting how in the appendix of 1984 the whole 10 pages is about newspeak newspeak and how they would distort language to make people think in a pattern that they wanted and you know the environmental movement and in fact the climate movement are riddled with this I mean, green energy is not green. It's not renewable. I mean, we've discussed that before. Uh, You know, our prime minister and certainly Joe Biden constantly calls it carbon pollution. I mean, it's not carbon. It's not pollution. You know, and, and, you know, it's funny, Joseph, the meetings that are being held in Ottawa right now, there's public dialogues being chaired and organized by a climate activist group called CAFES, C-A-F-E-S, which it actually, I can't remember the exact what it stands for, but if you look at the background of the people that are running it, they have no background in science. And so much of what they're saying just doesn't make any sense at all. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the most basic things which people get wrong all the time is climate is the 30 year average of weather. So they will point to specific events like the wildfires this year and they'll say, oh, my God, this is an indication of climate change. You say, well, yeah, if it happened every year for decades, it could be. But one year, when last year, of course, we were below average in, in forest fires, it doesn't indicate climate at all. And similarly, the tornadoes or the flooding or anything, you would have to have it continuously happening year after year where there was a positive upward trend 
for literally decades before you could start talking about climate. And, you know, it strikes me that one of the troubles here is the people leading the campaign in these various groups don't even have a basic understanding of science. I mean, I would think that that should be a prerequisite in a group that's promoting climate change uh, alarmism. <laughs> well, well, even if you had that 30-year trend, there's nothing to say that for sure that it's due to climate change. And again, one of the things that people don't understand about genuine scientific method, okay? You posit a theory and then you test the theory. But when you're testing the theory, you're not doing research to find things that prove the theory. You are trying to falsify the theory. If you're not trying to falsify the theory, then you're not conducting proper scientific research because that is the proper method in science. So yeah. let's take Ottawa, for instance, where you and I both live. Um, uh, five years ago, we had a tornado touchdown. All right. And everybody right away said, this is evidence of climate change. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, maybe, maybe it is. But if you're taking, if you're doing your research properly, you're not looking at the fact that we had a tornado and asking, is this a sign of climate change? What you're doing is you're taking the climate change theory and you're asking, why haven't we had more tornadoes? Yeah. So yeah, the data actually does not support the theory. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that is the proper scientific method. Now, again, what I'm saying here is not intended to say human beings have no effect on the climate. Okay. I, I don't, this is what I'm saying. I don't know. What I know is that I don't know. And what I know is that we collectively don't know. And, and we know that there's a very interesting theory about climate change out there and, and man's um, contribution to it through CO2 emissions, etc. But I haven't, I haven't even seen I have, and I look for this and I'm waiting for somebody to show me to connect the dots so that I understand the basis of that theory. But, but even then, it seems to me that when you start to do the research, if you're looking for proper research, you're looking for evidence that is contrary to the theory. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and these guys, what they do is they, they, they don't do that. They, they look and they say, well, you know, the the arctic the arctic uh, uh ice ice pack is is uh, field is growing well let's forget about that that's an anomaly <laughs> yeah well, that's right well that's it's the anomalies a buildup of anomalies that are not consistent with your theory that you're supposed to be looking at yeah exactly and yet if you do the sorts of thinking that you just laid out looking for problems with the theory you're called a climate change denier I mean, this is what's happening in both the United States and Canada and around the world. Yeah. You know, Joseph, I'd love to talk more. I have to quote one quote from Einstein just before we end. And that is the idea that consensus, oh, if the consensus of scientists agrees, then we must be right. Well, of course, the consensus is debatable. But what Albert Einstein said when he was told that there was a letter, 100 scientists against Albert Einstein because of his theory of, of relativity, he said, why 100? If there was, if I was wrong and there was one, that would be enough, you know? So I, I think the bottom line is we've forgotten a lot of basic scientific method, a lot of basic philosophy. The logical fallacies that we see throughout the whole thing is, is insane. And yet if you point these things out, 
you're an enemy of the state, you know, and you have to be censored. YouTube will take you off. You know, I, I was banned from various websites because I dared to question any of these things. And the same thing with COVID. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I, I'd like to keep talking. I'd like to keep hearing what you have to say. Well, but after. Well, let me just let me just conclude with, by making one observation, uh, Tom. Copernicus and Galileo are rolling over in their graves oh, yeah. at what we've become. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. We're, we're doing the equivalent of witch burning, you know, when people actually stand up and do what's proper scientific method. You know, it's, it's sad. So my guest today has been Joseph Benemy, and you can hear his talk show at the Joseph Benemy Show. We'll include a link to it under the podcast. He was a former policy aide to Stephen Harper. He's a leading conservative commentator. And Joseph, that was a lot of fun. That was really interesting. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Tom. Okay, so this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the screen.